Welcome to another episode of Reverse Ambition, a podcast that features those who take a leap of faith to follow their dreams and their passion. My name is Kelsey Cooper, aka The Social Broker, and I'm so excited to have today's guest. Um, I actually heard her story um, when I was in a room in Clubhouse, but before I bring her on, let me give you a little bit of her bio. She's an award-winning attorney and entrepreneur focused on social impact investing. She is dedicated to transforming the criminal justice system and has won freedom of numerous people serving fundamental death sentences for federal drug offenses, including seven clients who received executive clemency from President Barack Obama. She is founder of several nonprofits and social enterprises, including the Burial Alive Project, Girl Embrace Sin Mothers, XV1 Capital Partners, Melina Rain LLC. She has earned many honors, including being named one of the one of America's most outstanding young lawyers by American Bar Association. She's also the author of a knock at midnight a story of hope justice and freedom a memoir detailing how her journey transformed her understanding of injustice in the courts of genius languishing behind bars and the very definition of freedom herself please welcome miss Brittany barnett Brittany, what's up girl hey hey what's good listen i hope i didn't butcher your bio so bad but oh no you did great it was such a pleasure reading it like i was telling my audience i heard you speaking in a room and about your journey uh and i was like oh my god this is a dope story and i will you know so i slide in your dm i was like i would love for you to be on reverse ambition because i feel like your story could inspire a lot of people so thank you first and foremost for getting on here with me and sharing your story Absolutely. I really appreciate you for inviting me on. No worries. Okay, so let's get it started. My question, I always ask people, walk me through your journey in terms of where you're from, where you went to school, um, what you majored in, what you did after you know, college as a career, and how did you get to where you are now? So you want to get it started? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a small town in rural East Texas, definitely a daughter of the rural South. And I had a a pretty happy childhood. You know, I played sports. My mom was a nurse. My stepdad worked at the local coal mine. I was very into basketball. Unfortunately, During my childhood, my mom developed a drug addiction Mm. that ultimately led to her going to prison. Wow. And she went to prison when I was a young adult. I was actually in college when she went to prison. And it was devastating Mm -hmm. for my sister and I, especially because we're such a close-knit family. And even though... We went through the challenges of my mom's addiction. My sister and I knew that my mom loved us. Mm -hmm. And we knew the love was unconditional from my mom and our our family. And I talk about in my book a lot just about how powerful that love is. And I use this quote in my book from 
a Nikki Giovanni poem called Nikki Rosa. Mm -hmm. And in the poem, Nikki says, black love is black wealth. Mm. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was quite happy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that really resonated with me because we were we were quite happy in spite of the challenges we faced. And it just shows, you know, one, that black people are not this monolithic people who just have struggles and pain, mm -hmm. you know, and, and just how nuanced and complex we are as humans and that that pain and the happiness mm -hmm. and those challenges can coexist. And so my mom went to prison and I graduated college and got a bachelor's and master's in accounting. Oh, wow. I be became a certified public accountant. I went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is one of the big four accounting firms. Mm -hmm. But I always wanted to be a lawyer, honestly. Like, I grew up wanting to be Claire Huxtable. Why did you choose accounting, though, if you always wanted to be a lawyer? As I got older, like in high school especially, I started to feel like becoming a lawyer was out of my league. Mm. Growing up, where I did, there were no lawyers in our community, and there certainly weren't any black women lawyers. And I really did. I started to feel like it was just too too big of a goal and dream. Mm -hmm. And it shows just how important representation is, mm -hmm. that we, we can see people who look like us in these positions. And was always good at math and decided to to go for accounting instead. And then when I was in law school, a mentor of mine told me he was going to law school. I mean, when I was in undergrad, mm -hmm. a friend of mine told me he was going to law school. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute, if he can do it, then I know I can do it, you know? And um, I did. So I, I graduated with accounting degrees, went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers for a couple of years, and then went to law school. Wow. And from from there, I just knew I was going to practice corporate law. It was a natural gravitation, you know, from mm -hmm. the accounting. Why corporate law? So what what was it something that attracted you to corporate law? It it was a natural gravitation for me from the accounting okay. work that I did, and so it just really was a natural a natural fit. Mm -hmm. And when I got to law school midway through I took a critical race theory course and this course analyzed the intersection between race and the law mm -hmm. and opened my eyes to the criminal legal system in this country and how mass incarceration devastates families and entire communities and I had seen it myself firsthand when my own mother went to prison mm -hmm. but taking this course in law school and learning how these laws were designed, you know, I wrote my paper that year in the course on the disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. And this 100 to 1 sentencing disparity that wow. the 1986, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act created. And what that meant was you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have only five grams of crack cocaine and we will receive the same sentence mm. in prison and what is not lost on anyone now and especially in the late 80s more affluent white people 
were using powder cocaine mm-hmm. and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color, in particular black communities. And it, this law created this huge disproportionate numbers as it related to who was in prison for drugs. And so even today, over 80% of the people in federal prison for drugs are black and brown. And so in my paper, I wanted to really explore this, but I also wanted to show the heartbeat. I wanted to include real stories and real cases of people Mm -hmm. who have been impacted. And that's when I came across the case of a woman that changed my life forever. Mm. In what way? She was serving life without parole for a drug offense. Her name is Sharonda Jones. She had never been in any trouble before, Mm. had a very low-level role in the drug case. She never even received a traffic ticket before. And I learned that, yeah, and I learned there was no parole in the federal system. So her life sentence meant she was set to die in prison under this 100-to-1 ratio that I just talked about. And her case just tugged at my soul. I sent her a card mm. in prison and I told her I was a law student. You know, I was going to practice corporate law, but I wanted to help get her out of prison. Mm. And so I graduated law school. I went on to practice corporate law, but I also took on her case pro bono. Mm-hmm. So I would work on mergers and acquisitions by day at my corporate job and by night, I will work pro bono on her case to, to help her help her get out of prison, you know, and it was a lot of work. Yeah, what did you, you get know, the energy? And, and, I mean, merging and acquisition is not no nine to five type job. You work a lot oh, of hours. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. You know, I think Sharonda empowered me, you mm. know, just so much because I would go visit her in prison and I remember the first visit, you know, I was a little nervous. Didn't know what to expect. I had never met anyone to, to die in prison before. Wow. How old was she? What How I, old was she? She was 32 okay. when she was arrested. So by the time I met her, she was 42. Wow. She was so it was 10 years 10, in. 10 years at the time. Wow. Yes. And I was nervous, you know, waiting in the visit room for her to walk out. But what I got was a woman whose smile lit up the room. Mm. What I got was a woman who was so full of energy and you could tell loved by everyone mm-hmm. all the other women who were in prison in the visit room were, were saying her name and waving and so her ability to be so positive in the face of adversity I that know. would be unbearable yeah for many people you know that motivated me that was empowering for me to do mm. to do the work right so you said uh you were just doing a mergers and acquisition job during the daytime and at nighttime. So um, how did you balance both? And, you know, when did you have a breakthrough, if you got a breakthrough, um, you know, with her case? You know, yeah, I I balanced both just with this thought that I kept having, you know, th- that there's nothing more urgent than freedom. Mm. And as I was working on her case over those six years, I began to take on more. Wow, six, six years, wow. Yeah, so I was taking on more pro bono cases of people in similar situations as she was, and just lots of 
legal avenues not working through the courts. How did you how did you I, identify I these additional cases? Did they just come to you word of mouth or they came to me? Yeah, they came to me because I, I wasn't a criminal lawyer. So it's not like I had my shingle hanging and was soliciting cases. You know, people were, were finding me. I was working to get a lot of media attention to Sharonda's case. And so people would find read about us and reach out, you know, and I, I had took on probably five or six other cases and so frustrated with the courts and not being able to get her free through the courts because the laws were so rigid. Mm. And I applied for clemency for her from the president who was president Obama at the time. And on December 18th, 2015, president Obama granted Sharonda Jones clemency. Wow. And, and he took six years. Release. It took me six years and she had served, by that time, 16 years and nine months. Wow. Was she still smiling um, all through the yes. ordeal and staying hopeful? All through the ordeal. Mm, the power, the power of our people, girl. Mm. Yes. Yes. It's beautiful thing. Right. So how did you feel when you finally got this breakthrough? Um, what were you, what was your state of mind? You know, how, you know. What was your vibes like? You know, I always believed, you know, that Sharonda Jones would be free. But even with that firm belief that I held on to for those six years, it was still pretty unbelievable, Mm -hmm. you know, to get that call from Washington, D.C., from the Office of the Pardon Attorney telling me that President Obama had granted Sharonda Jones clemency and what that meant for us, you know, is with the stroke of his pen, he had saved her life. Mm. And that was and the only way such a, six years. And that was the only way, you know, she was able to get released. Based that was the, our absolute last hope was clemency. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm getting mad just hearing this story in terms of discrepancy. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, when you got, you know, people, that smoke not smoke sniff cocaine they they get a free ride nobody pay attention to them when it comes to a lot of us in our community and a lot of reasons why we do what we do is because we're depressed and we need some a form a way to cope and also we're broke we don't have resources to live so we have to do what we got to do and 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 to and for the court system to come down hard on us, knowing that the real perpetrators are just, you know, living their life untouched. It's just really, you know, I get angry. I'm I'm just angry hearing, thinking about the idea of that discrepancy. Absolutely, it's infuriating, you know, and and knowing that it it, it didn't just impact Sharonda's life. She had a daughter. You know, she missed out on 16 years and nine months of her mm. daughter's life, of her own freedom. And it truly is one of the most pressing civil rights issues of our time, the way this country incarcerates so many human beings and locks them in, in cages. Yeah. It is a moral crisis. Mm-hmm. So, okay, now you have this amazing win after 16 years. 
did you dive into criminal justice uh, work or did you were you still a corporate attorney? I was still a corporate attorney. You know, I was like so happy. Like, yes, Sharonda is free. You know, she was like the case I have been working for so many years on. And I was wrapping up other cases that I had and, and getting more people out of prison. Wow. And I said, now, you know, I'm going to focus on my corporate career. I'm very successful in the work that I do as a corporate lawyer. I want to continue to climb the corporate ladder and just blaze that trail for black women and girls and ensuring we have a seat at that table in those corporate boardrooms. But then it was just something pulling and pressing for me. I came across another case Mm. of a man named Corby Jacobs who, just like Sharonda, was serving life without parole for his first ever conviction, felony or otherwise, for drugs under these outdated federal drug laws. And I went to visit Corey in prison, and he was teaching me how to meditate. Wow. Because I'm still practicing corporate law by day, you know, and these deals are getting intense, and then I'm working on cases still at night, and... I was learning this practice of meditation from him. And when I went to visit him, he was telling me how he had read that nature can enhance the meditation experience. But he said he hadn't seen a tree in years. Wow. Because the prison yard where Corey was housed is surrounded by like this 12 foot concrete wall. Mm -hmm. And there were no trees on the prison yard. And I honestly don't remember much of the conversation with Corey after that because I could not move past the fact that he had not seen a tree. Mm. Wow. A tree. And I left that visit with him so empowered. First, I took in every single tree that I could on my way to the airport. Mm. And I still do. I still appreciate trees. Mm -hmm. And I just left that visit wanting to use my platform as a lawyer for the greater good. And shortly after made the decision after a lot of internal thinking and speaking with my father and and people for advice, I decided to resign. What did your, what did your, what what was the advice given you? You know, I would talk to my dad who gives the best advice and I was telling him I was feeling conflicted. You know, on the one hand, I I loved my my corporate job Mm -hmm. and the excitement of it, the financial security of it, and not knowing what what was in front of me. You know, I didn't have anything lined up if I left. And, you know, from there, just wasn't sure what to expect, but I felt this journey called to follow my passion to transform the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. And my dad said, BK, that's what he calls me. He said, BK, stop worrying so much about the challenges and imagine the possibilities Mm. instead. Mm. That's all you needed to hear, huh? That's all I needed to hear. And from there, he said, I think you already know Mm. what you need to do. Yeah, yeah, your dad does give some great advice. I thought he was gonna like no, because you know a lot of parents, 
you know, oh my God, you're a corporate lawyer making a ton of money. Why are you going to throw that away for the unknown? So I definitely agree that your your dad does give good good advice. Yes, <laughs> he does. He does. Okay, so once you decided, you know, turning your resignation, like you say, you didn't have anything lined up in terms of what you're going to do, but you know you had to follow this passion. What was your next steps once you resigned? Yeah, so I waited a couple of months after to resign uh, because it's all about being strategic, right? And I'm no fool, so mm. I waited until I got my year in, my year end bonus. Nice, and that was enough, you know, to cover me for for several months. And from there, I hit the ground running with trying to free Corey Jacobs mm-hmm. because now I had another case, and President Obama was leaving office. You know, I didn't have six years anymore right. like I did. With Shervonda, it was we were like ten months away from from President Obama leaving office. And as I was out and about trying to raise awareness for Corey's case, and I would travel to D.C. How would you wear awareness for these these cases? What would you do to to draw attention? To I would I would reach out to criminal justice organizations to see if they would share the stories on their website. I was emailing journalists like crazy. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, radio stations. And for years, with Sharonda's case, for example, it was just dead silence, you mm. know. And and then we caught a break with the Washington Post. Nice. And a journalist from the Washington Post featured Sharonda's story on the front page. Nice. And that is actually how Corey, Corey Jacobs found me oh, okay. through that article. Nice. Oh. And so I would networked you know a lot and from there i was offered a job mm. to to lead this clemency now campaign with an organization called cut 50 and you know it really shows how when the timing is right and the universe aligns and you take that leap of faith how things just line up right like it's pretty amazing amazing how things with opportunities fall in your lap and things line up and so this job was brand new for me. It was it was organizing and designing a national campaign to encourage President Obama to grant as many clemencies as he could before he left office. Wow. And I dove right in. I, I organized a two day campaign in DC that fall of twenty sixteen, brought dozens of families to DC to advocate for their incarcerated loved ones, had an event at Google, at the Department of Justice, you know, it was pretty phenomenal mm-hmm. and working, you know, to not just free Corey Jacobs, but as many people as we could, you know, and luckily I had seven clients who received clemency from president Barack Obama. Wow. And it was, it was a pretty remarkable journey. And so you had a 10 month window to get Corey Jacobs free and you just dived in and you made it happen. Yes. Wow. Literally at almost at the buzzer. Wow. You know, he, he received clemency December 19th, mm. 2016, you know, about one month wow. before <laughs> President Obama left office. And so once President Obama left office, it was the first time where I was still, you know, because I hit the ground running when I left corporate law. And I just remember kind of being in a funk, like, man, what the hell have I done? You know, I've left my job. I'm 
out here. President Obama has left. There's no more clemency. Right. Initiative. And Corey and Sharonda were free. Corey had ended up serving 18 years. Wow. As I mentioned, Sharonda had served 16 years. And they felt like a survivor's remorse, if you will, mm. because they were so happy they were free, but they knew they had left behind so many people who they spent decades in prison with, mm -hmm. who they felt were just as deserving of freedom as they were. And so we linked arms. I linked arms with my clients, Corey and Sharonda, and we co-founded the Buried Alive Project. Mm. And through the Buried Alive Project, we provide free pro bono legal representation for people serving life without parole mm -hmm. in federal prison under, under these outdated laws. You know, and today we've worked to help free dozens of men and women, men and women who were set to die in prison. How did they, um, how did you guys finance that? The Buried Alive Project? We set it up as a nonprofit organization. The first year I almost had to self-fund it. Wow. <laughs> anyone who's in non the nonprofit world knows it's very, very hard to, to fundraise. It took a lot, you know, to, to raise awareness for the work that we were doing. And it's still very difficult to fundraise. I've resorted to to partnering as well with law firms mm -hmm. to help provide pro bono support for us and working now to fundraise, you know, to hire more lawyers mm -hmm. to help. Right. So you said how many, you said you guys freed a lot of people you know, through the Buried Alive Project, how many um, freedom did you guys you know, get in terms of prisoners being free? To, to date, through the Buried Alive Project, through my work and my co-counsel's work, my angel Cody, she has the Carceration Collective, we have freed 54 wow. women who were set to die in prison. Wow. Listen, I'm just thinking about what if you didn't take that leap of faith? You know, what would happen to all, right. those, all those lives, right. you know, who were wrongfully, you know, incarcerated, they'll be still be in prison. So I definitely got to, like, you know, tip my hat and give you kudos, girl. You did the damn thing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, and you said that, you know, at one point you were stuck. It's like, oh, my God, what did you do? Did you lift, lift your nine to five, your you know, high paying gig? So after the Bury Live project, did you continue to feel um, second guess a little? I wouldn't say for lack of a better term right now, your decision. Or were you more convicted to keep going in a direction although you never you didn't necessarily know what direction you were going in you know i have to be extremely transparent and and real it is up and down mm. you know buried alive project is going we're working to get people free it's just me and my co-counsel and she has her own nonprofit, and we're both kind of financing it ourselves and it was kind of like up and down I'm like geez you know this is difficult you know I'm, I was what have I done still you know uh -huh. up and down and then things just started lining up and we started getting more attention and awareness to the work that we were doing and then I got a book deal and was able to write a book about the journey and wow just being able to how were you able really, to get that book deal you just it just randomly came to you or 
You just no. It was it. it took a while. <laughs> it, it took a while. It was an intentional decision to, okay. to decide to write a book, and it took me two years to write the book because um, I'm still working on cases in the meantime. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it um, was definitely another journey in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But it was just a lot of opportunity coming and just having to remind myself to push through and just thinking of my clients and the resilience they have to push through while serving life, right. you know, decades of their lives, you know, and thinking of them and and seeing them, it gives me a lot of encouragement, a lot of hope. Right. So how did how did your book do? It did well. We just published it in September, and about a month ago today, Amazon named my book as the number one best book of 2020. What's the name of it? It's called A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. Right. I did mention that in the bio a little bit. I just wanted you to say it again. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, please go get that book. I'm actually going to get the book. Do you have um, an audio version of it? Yes, yes. Nice, because I'm usually, you know, during the day, I'm busy. So, but having, you know, hearing an amazing story such as this in my ear while I'm going about my, you know, my business is definitely empowering, especially now, you know, with COVID and all this negativity that's around us, you know, just hearing empowering, inspiring stories, especially of our journey, people of color's journey, you know, is, is dope, you know? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the support, but definitely hearing how others get through, you know, and and keep going. I used to go fishing with my grandpa. I mentioned I'm from the rural South Mm -hmm. and my grandparents had a pond in front of their house. And, you know, I'm a teenager, probably 12 or 13, and I would always, you know, vent to my grandpa. And he would listen to me. We'd be out fishing, and he would listen intently to me. And, and I just remember one conversation when I finished. He said, it ain't nothing but a step for a step a big girl. Mm. You just got to keep on stepping. Mm. Well, you know, Cornelia Bayou did a bunch of other stuff as well. Um, you know, Girls Embracing Mothers. Um. Yeah, the Girls Embracing Mothers is a a nonprofit I started be- years before Buried Alive, and it's for girls whose moms are in prison. Mm-hmm. And it stemmed from, of course, the incarceration of my own mom. And for the past seven years, we've partnered with Texas Women's Prisons to take girls every single month mm-hmm. to visit their moms in prison. Oh wow, and that's we dope. Get to bring in, yeah, we get to bring in food to eat lunch with the moms. We cover curriculum that revolves around critical life issues and always includes art therapy. You know, we really work to break the cycle and build the bond. And then I have two other companies, Melina Rain, which we're working to amplify the voices of creative writers from the South who've been impacted by the justice system. And I have 16 capital partners where we work to help provide capital the formerly incarcerated entrepreneurs. Wow. So how do you, how do you manage all these ventures? Um, and also I, I know the answer, but all these ventures are, they all in line with your purpose. Yeah. 
Nice. Yes. Nice. Yes. And I, I am working, you know, just to build solid teams. Girls Embracing Mothers have an amazing team. Our program director is a formerly incarcerated woman. And, you know, it's so important to me that formerly incarcerated people are centered and at the table, you know, that they're leading the way in any movement that surrounds them. And I really make intentional efforts mm-hmm. to to ensure that happens. But it, it's definitely all about having having a good team around you because it definitely takes a village. Right. Question. You have all these things going on. Has it affected your personal life, you know, your well-being, you know, partnerships, you know, personal partnerships? Um, or do you have a way of balancing everything? You know, it hasn't affected, like, personal partnerships or things like that. I think it's just about being intentional about balancing, which I do have a hard time mm-hmm. even now. You know, one of the things I'm proud prioritizing is just self-care and self-care based on that radical definition of self-care, you know, not the co-opted version, but as Audre Lorde says, you know, self-care isn't an act of self-indulgence. It's an act of self-perseverance. And it's a time to really replenish Mm. so that you can more fully engage in the work. And so, you know, I'm still meditating. Wow, yeah. Like Corey taught me to do, and and just working on myself internally. You know, and trying to be a lot more intentional about taking that time mm-hmm. for myself. You have to. Oh my God! If you can't help yourself, there's no way you can help anybody else. Absolutely. So absolutely. How do you see this thing playing out in terms of you know five, ten years down the road? What do you still see yourself doing and in terms of where do you want to land? You know, I always say that as I was working to free my clients, they were helping to free me too. Mm. And I know that we cannot keep rescuing people from prison and restoring them to poverty. Mm. And I'm holding this vision of helping to create sustainable liberation which includes economic liberation, equity, and it's why 16 capital partners exist. Mm -hmm. I want to help justice-impacted people be in positions to thrive and not just survive. Mm -hmm. And so in five to 10 years, you know, I see the Buried Alive Project having three dozens more men and women, you know, and I, I see myself raising a fund raising a venture capital fund that focuses solely on funding startup companies led by justice impacted people. Mm-hmm. What do you see yourself from a, a personal perspective in terms of, um, do you see yourself with family? Do you see yourself living a certain way? You know, what do you see yourself? What's, what's that vision looks like? I see myself being free. You know, I see myself, working continually on my own healing, Mm -hmm. you know, and taking that time and space for myself to ensure that I'm more centered and grounded, that I'm claiming abundance, Mm -hmm. that I'm claiming ease and less resistance. Mm. And, you know, just being a light. Mm. Well, you already are a light, you know, and 
thank you. I mean, you you uh, help um, get fifty something pe- people released from prison. Um, I don't know anybody else who have done that, you know. And you continue in the work. So I'm just gonna. I, I hear. I, I hear this term on Clubhouse a lot. I'm gonna give you your flowers <laughs> while oh, I can because you. I feel like it's people like you um, who go beyond being selfish and think about others and sacrifice their livelihood um, to to help others. And a lot of a lot of times, you know, those people are not recognized. So I I personally um recognizes you and this is the reason why i'm talking to you right now and you know definitely um continue to take care of yourself um because the world needs you these prisoners needs you our culture needs you and so i just want to like give you as many flowers i possibly can and i just met you girl Thank you. I I received those flowers. I received them. I received them. I really appreciate appreciate you. Right. So, any advice, you know, before we wrap up, any advice to give anyone um who took a leap of faith in their, you know, just to follow their dreams and passion. And I and you mentioned a couple of times how you were like, "Oh my god, what did I do?" Um kind of sort of second guessing like, you know, why did I give up such security for this passion any advice you would give individuals like that to kind of continue to push through yeah you know i'm gonna borrow from my dad and just remind people to not to worry so much about the challenges but imagine the possibilities instead that's dope that's dope um you know you drop so many gems by just telling your story and so how can people you know, get to learn more about all your projects and how can they get access to you via social media, via website or whatever? Yes, I am on Twitter and Instagram under Miss BKB, M-S-B-K-B. The Buried Alive Project is on Instagram at Buried Alive Project. You can also visit our website at Buried Alive Project well Brittany Miss Brittany thank you for sharing your journey and thank you for doing all the dynamic and amazing things you do um, I know you know following your dreams and passion could be a very lonely place and could be a stressful place so I totally understand you know to a certain extent what you're going through but you know just inspired by all the amazing work you're doing and I could and you will continue to do so like I said Please, please take care of yourself. Put yourself first. Make sure you have enough to give to the world. Um, the world needs you. And I really appreciate you sharing your story on Reverse Ambition, girl. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another amazing episode of Reverse Ambition Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and you got some value that you could take and apply to your personal journey please do me a big favor and subscribe to wherever is your preferred podcast listening platform so you can be the first to know when a brand new episode is released and remember it is never too late to leap to follow your passion and dreams worst case scenario 
can always leap back. Until next time, this is Kelsey Cooper, and take care. <laughs>